Welcome back, lovers of the strange and unusual. Are you ready to go back to arson and see the next turn Tessa's very weird night takes? First, we have this word from our sponsor. Hello. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm/partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Okay, before we return to the show, I just wanted to mention how incredible it is that Dark Heights is our writer, C.D. Miller's only published work. Let that be a lesson that you don't need to have 50 books under your belt to produce an amazing horror podcast. What I love about C.D. Miller's work is that all these characters are so idiosyncratic. That's what I love about horror fans in general, is that we tend to be very open-minded people who... Uh, have a very weird or interesting take or perspective on on life. And uh, we like the strange and unusual, to steal a quote from Beetlejuice. Speaking of, you're about to meet a few more peculiar characters in this episode. Let's get right back into it. Tess is waiting for us at Arson. I'm your host, Panbandu, and this is Dark Heights, Episode 3. The formidable front doors to arson opened silently outward at Lina's light tug on the brass handles. We went inside. The entrance foyer was an expansive circular space crowned with an arching glass skylight high above. From both left and right of the main entrance, imposing staircases with ironwork balustrades swept up to a second floor. It felt like being in a cathedral, the way shafts of the late evening's last light fell through a hush of dust motes onto the black and white tiles of the inlaid marble floor. Wow, I said. There was a large luminous painting facing the front doors, yet set back in the round foyer, equidistant from the flanking staircases. The painting was taller than me. It seemed to be more or less floating in midair, though when I came toward it, I saw that it was contained in a glass case suspended from nearly invisible steel wires that dangled from the ceiling. 
There was a row of lights set in the floor beneath it that gave the perfect illumination from below to balance the natural light from above. I was dazzled. I mean, just, wow, I said again. I know, right? Lina stood next to me, frowning. Pretty fancy. Not much doubt you've arrived at the home of someone incredibly rich and powerful and impressive. It's amazing. Depicted in the painting were two figures dressed in similar lavender-hued robes, a man crouched or slumped down on the left, entangled in the gnarled branches of a tree. White blossoms were bursting out everywhere around him, and a tall, lithe woman on the right who stood over him, holding a book open and away from his eyes while her face was turned so that she looked directly down upon him. Edward Byrne Jones, Lena said, is the artist. The Beguiling of Merlin, 1877. My father says it's the original, but I'm pretty sure the world thinks the original is in the Lady Lever Art Gallery in Liverpool, though maybe that's the fake one, who knows. She shrugged. Anyway, it's Nemoway, the Lady of the Lake, who's putting Merlin into his endless sleep after he falls in love with her because she's young and beautiful and he's Gandalf's age and girls never look at him anymore except this one did. Hey, maybe she loves old guys. Except no, she just wants to learn your spells, you fucking idiot. And now that she's got some power, here she is with your wizard's book putting you to sleep. And oh, guess what? That means King Arthur makes really terrible decisions without you, and Camelot is pretty much doomed now, just because you're a creepy ancient bastard. You've got some opinions about that story, I commented. Maybe it was a trick of the lighting and the angle from which I was looking at the painting, but the perspective seemed to shift depending on where I focused. Viewed as a whole, they appeared to be looking right at each other, but when I focused on the figure of Nimue, she definitely seemed to spring into the foreground while Merlin receded into the background. Yeah, well, Lina was saying, it's always the way tragedies are constructed, all the way through history. Old men are foolish when they should be wise, young women should be innocent, but they're evil. Speak for yourself, I said. I'm pretty sure I'm not evil. She shook her head. No one actually thinks that they're stupid or evil. That's decided by other people, those who come after you. We heard voices just then. Two men were coming down the left-hand staircase. Since Lina and I had been drawn toward the painting of Nimue and Merlin, we were partially hidden from view as they descended. I found that I knew one of the speakers. I recognized his laugh. It was Devin Hanlon, the TV actor. You're not wrong, Severand, he was saying to the other man. We can't invite the Arts Nexus people. They ruin every event in this town. The other man spoke with a cultured European accent in a rich and mellifluous Jeremy Irons voice that made me want to close my eyes and listen to him read poetry for days on end. As long as you're sure, Devon, that the Wellness Center won't get in trouble for slighting the Arts Nexus... I'm not sure I care, Hanlon replied. Their footsteps approached the bottom of the staircase. It's a gala for the benefit of the wellness center, and we'll damn well make sure we want who we want here that night. The two men emerged from the staircase and moved into the middle of the entrance foyer. Lina stepped forward. Father, she said. Devin Hanlon jumped back as if he was about to be attacked. The look on his face, I had to suppress a laugh. 
The man next to him, however, turned toward us without surprise, as if he had known all along that we were there. My God, I thought, he was unbelievably handsome. His hair was graying at the temples, and there were lines at the corners of his eyes, which made me think he was likely in his late fifties or early sixties, yet his physique underneath the bespoke Armani shirt and slacks was more Greek god than senior citizen. Why are you hiding back there, Lena? Her father said. We weren't hiding, she said. In fact, we just came into the house. I wanted to introduce you to my new friend. This is Tess. Her father stepped forward and held out his hand. He wore a gold watch that looked like it was worth more than most houses in Park Heights. I shook his hand. It was cold. The grip of his handshake was nearly painfully strong. It is a pleasure to meet you, Tess. An unusual thing to see my daughter with a friend in tow. You may call me Marius. I found myself speechless. I was stunned by self-consciousness and the fear of sounding crass or uncouth before this distinguished man. Then I saw that Hanlon was looking at me with one eyebrow raised. Tess, he said. Kind of a surprise to see you here. Yeah, me too. Marius Severand looked at the two of us. Do you know each other? Hanlon smiled at me with what he must have thought was a fatherly or avuncular expression. I saw that his beard had grown even longer and wilder since I had last seen him at my house when he had been visiting my mother a month ago now. I thought I had heard from her that Devin Hanlon's old cult TV show City Midnight was getting a reboot or something. I would have thought he'd have ditched his Unabomber look with some new success on the way. Devin and my mother have known each other a long, long time, I said in reply, as Hanlon was apparently still deciding how to frame his relationship with me. Former stepfather-to-be that never was? My mother had pretty much left him at the altar a long, long time ago. This is Barbara Bellamy's daughter, Hanlon finally said. Oh, I see, Lina's father said. I sensed that next to me, Lina did something close to a double take. The horror movie actress? She blurted out, to all of us or to no one. Then to me, she added, you never said anything. I wanted to tell her that we had known each other for about half an hour, but I sensed it would be the wrong thing to say in front of her father. He had been watching us as if he was judging the validity of Lina's claim that we were friends. How is your mom doing, Tess? Hanlon asked me. She's good. I haven't seen her at the center in a while. I shrugged. She still goes every day, as far as I know. Hanlon frowned. Hmm, that's odd I haven't seen her. Abruptly, he turned to Lina's father. Well, he said, I'd better get going. I'll email your assistant the guest list, and I'll leave any changes or additions up to your discretion. Of course, Lina's father said courteously, with a slight bow of his head. Girls, Hanlon said by way of goodbye, and went to the front doors. Then he stopped, turned back. For the record, Marius, your daughter would be hard-pressed to find anyone in Park Heights who's half as nice as Tess Bellamy. Thank you, Devon. Lina's father said. Lina whispered next to me, I hate that guy. And why was he talking about us like we weren't standing right here? Yeah, I said. I know what you mean. Lina's father had turned back to regard us. He was much taller than either of us. 
So, there's going to be some kind of party here? Lina asked him. A fundraiser for the Wellness Center? Unfortunately, yes. Sounds mind-numbingly stultifying. I'm sure it will be. Lina's father suddenly snapped his arm out in a gesture that made me think, for just a second, that he had intended to strike Lina with the back of his hand, except the gesture ended with his hand stretched out, palm face up, the way you would approach a spooked animal. Lina responded by moving into his reach, and he enfolded her in a hug. Then, with her father's arm around her shoulders, Lina turned so that both of them were looking at me. I like her, Lina said. I see that. Can I keep her? She's not a pet. Lina extracted herself from her father's embrace. Come on, Tess, she said, and she took hold of my hand. I'll take you to the library. I guess I'd better introduce you to my brother as well. Lina, her father said, his voice snapping like a whip. Both of us froze in place as if we'd been caught sneaking away. Lina turned back to him and said, with a suddenly undisguised snarl of resentment, What is it, Dad? You and I will have a conversation later about unsanctioned trips to town. What the hell, I thought. And I nearly spoke up to him, despite the authority he carried in his bearing, in his voice. Lina squeezed my arm as if she knew what I was thinking and wanted me to stand down. As you wish, she said quietly. Then she led me away. We went past the left staircase, through a door, entering a long hallway. I told you, she said. My father's strict. Sure, but you didn't do anything, I said. I broke a rule. It's okay, though. It's nothing. She looked over at me, and I could plainly see she was trying not to be upset. There was a truth here I didn't understand, and Lina wanted only to hide it from me. Our steps echoed on the hardwood flooring in this wing of the house. We passed rooms that I glanced into, a storage room, a broom closet, a security room where an empty swivel chair sat in front of a bank of monitors showing the manor and the grounds, and then Lina opened the door at the far end of the hallway, and we came into the library. Floor-to-ceiling bay windows looked out over the lawns in front of the manor, now twilight dark. The library was a spacious, open room with a high, vaulted ceiling. There were several of those long tables you might see in an old public library, with green-shaded lamps set before each chair for night reading. All along the walls opposite the towering windows were rows of bookshelves. There was even the requisite wheeled stepladder for reaching the book shelved up high. It felt to me like the library was a copy of another room in another place, a reading room situated somewhere scholarly, like Oxford or Cambridge. Someone was sitting at one of the tables with his back to us. As he rose from his chair, he eclipsed the light from the shaded desk lamp behind him, becoming a silhouette. Then he moved forward to meet us, coming into the light from the hallway. I drew in a breath. Lina's brother, it was him unmistakably, was such a close copy of Lina, the effect was unsettling, as if her own sharp-edged beauty had always held masculine qualities, while his intelligent good looks carried a certain feminine gracefulness. It hadn't occurred to me that they might be twins. His eyes were the same dark brown, even darker. I found them harder to read than Lina's. Moron, 
Lina said to him. It's your lucky day. I brought a girl into the house. No shit, he said to her in a voice that suggested he was bored by her sarcasm. He turned his eyes to me. I'm Will, he said simply. I'm Tess. Guess what? Lina broke in impatiently. Barbara Bellamy is her mom. Will looked back at me again, mirroring the double take Lina had performed earlier. Really? He grinned at me, and it was a genuine thing, not the strange, almost hostile kind of smile that Lina had perfected. Barbara Bellamy? Like, from Amen auf der Nacht's movies? Amen auf der Nacht was the bizarre German director who had made all of the insane horror movies, I couldn't watch any of them, that my mother had starred in, until he was murdered in 1997. Yep, that's her, I said. And me, her daughter. I love those movies, Will said. Incantation, that's the best horror movie of all time, easy. To be honest, I said, I'm not really a fan. Will had leaned back against the table and was looking at me closely. I can see it, now that I know. You definitely look like her. I self-consciously pulled on a strand of my hair. My mother and I had exactly the same straight black hair, and she had been considered somewhat of a sex symbol for it in the late 70s, early 80s. Especially when you draw attention to the hair like that, Will added. Lina interrupted again. We're going out tomorrow night, together. We're going to get drunk. It looked like Will suppressed a laugh. To me, he said, Is Lina paying you to hang out with her? Lina had gone over to the table where Will had been seated. She ignored her brother's remark. What are you reading, anyway? This book is ancient. She read the author's name. Thomas de Quincey. Oh, look, you highlighted a sentence in this probably extremely valuable first edition, which is now worth nothing. She read the sentence aloud. The mind is haunted as if by some jealousy of ghostly beings moving among us. Yeah, that describes you all right. Haunted. Will laughed softly. No more than you. Lena looked up from the book directly at me and said suddenly, so tomorrow, when and where? I found I was having a hard time keeping up with these siblings. It seemed to me that with both of them, their minds leapt across the gaps that opened between an ordinary person's one thought and the next. Um, I started. Well, why don't you meet me at Crazy's after my shift? Five o'clock? We can get some food. I'll figure out something for us as far as booze goes. Sounds great. Lina said, without any enthusiasm. Was she worried she wouldn't be allowed to come? Will said, Here, Tess, I'll walk you out. Don't want you to get lost. Um, okay, I said. Will was moving quickly to the exit of the library. I followed him as if swept up in his wake. Lina stood at the table, looking down at the floor. I turned and waved at her and said, See ya. She didn't even look up. It was like she'd been turned off. I had fallen behind Will as he led me back through the hallway to the front entrance. He glanced over his shoulder at me, then slowed down. When I caught up, he said, You really don't like your mom's movies? They're way too intense and dark and weird for me, I answered. Does she know you don't like them? I doubt it would matter to her. That's an odd thing to say. He looked at me. 
And you're really going to spend time with Lena? Of your own free will? If she can get a day pass out of this place, I said sharply. Will shook his head. I don't know what she said to you, but I'm sure she's framed it with as much melodrama as possible. I felt a surge of protectiveness for Lena. It seemed to me that here in this house, she needed someone to defend her. If you really want to know, I'm looking forward to getting to know her. I think we'll have a great time. I almost want to join you, just to see what happens to Lena after a few drinks. I think she'll talk at you twice as fast. Then he stopped me with a hand on my arm. We were at the end of the corridor. Look, we tease each other, sometimes a little too much. But she's my sister, and she's not like other people. She's vulnerable. I just want to make sure you're not here to ingratiate yourself with the wealth you think you see here. What? I said, hearing an edge of anger in my voice. That doesn't mean anything to me. And if Lynn is so vulnerable, whatever that means, why was she out tonight with some complete pig asshole? If I hadn't happened to be there, who was going to look out for her? His face darkened. Is that what was going on tonight? Who was she with? I don't know who it was, I said. I wasn't exactly lying. After all, I really didn't know the guys Lina had been out with. All I'm saying is that he wasn't the greatest guy from what I could tell. Was it Zach? He said. I had a moment of confusion. Zach was the friend, or had I got that wrong? No, Lina had been on the date with Dylan, I was sure of it. Will said, it was Zach, wasn't it? I decided not to try to hide anything. I wasn't good at it, and it didn't feel right. Zach was there. I'm not really sure what was going on, but her date wasn't with Zach, it was with Dylan. I don't know who that is. But you know Zach? Yes. And you didn't know Lina was going out with Zach's friend? Why would she tell me that? I shook my head. She needs to stay away from those guys. That's my feeling. Will's expression was grim. I know Zach well. We used to be friends, but not for a while now. He took in a deep breath, then sighed it out. You can't trust him. You guys are seniors? I asked him. He nodded. But not at Pally High, I'm guessing. We go to a private school in Bel Air. Of course you do. Will opened the door to the entrance foyer, and we crossed the circular space, passing by the painting of Nimue and Merlin on our way to the front doors of the house, which stood wide open. A strong spring breeze had woken up in the twilight, and I shivered from the chill air streaming into the building. I realized that I thought of this place, arson, in those terms, as a building, more like a museum or gallery than a place that people lived in and called a home. I turned at the threshold. You said that Lina is vulnerable. Why? What is it exactly that's going on? I want to know. Will's very dark eyes were still unreadable to me. It's nothing. We're just not used to people from out there, he gestured past me, finding their way in here. He started to pull the front doors closed. Then he paused. You know, I take it back, what I said earlier. You said a lot of things just now. I started by telling you that you look like your mom. You do, obviously, and she was amazing in those old movies. She had a quality that no one else did. 
But you, Tess, she's got nothing on how beautiful you are. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Rain slashes the windshield, hammers down on the roof of the car with the sound of everything breaking down, broken up, a thousand sharp shocks falling against the world every second, against me. Me. Yes, it's still just me here, and guess what? I'm losing my mind. Alone, in the car, on the road, in the rain, in the dark, out of gas, and maybe it's time to just pull over, lie down in the back seat, close my eyes. For just a few moments, I could cease to exist. There's a light ahead, off to the left. Slow down, can't see what it is. Oh my god, it's a gas station, and the light is on, and maybe it's open. Why the hell is there a gas station out here in the middle of nowhere? I pull up. The rain is crazy now, it's pouring down. There's waves of water washing across the gas station's asphalt apron and down into the gutter. I can't see much through the windshield. It's kind of amazing I've made it this far in this kind of rain. I get out of the car. The canopy over the two fuel pumps at this gas station is a partial shelter from the rain, though the wind immediately blows a sudden slap of cold water into my face. Right. The light I thought was the gas station being open for business is only a street light over there, where the gas station drive meets the highway. It's the only illumination here because everything else is closed. The pumps are closed. The door to the cashier is locked. No one is here at all. This is as far as I go then. I don't know what I'm doing. The downpour has blown over. A fine rain now falls, almost like a mist. The orange streetlight looks like a ball of fire rising through a cloud of falling steam. I start walking, out into the rain, away from my car, from the gas station. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to disappear. The rain isn't cold. I don't feel anything. I tilt my head back. The drops splash across my face. Yes, this is what I want. I want to be washed clean. And it starts to rain hard again, as if I asked for it, a deluge, soaking me down, washing the blood from my arms, from my face. I gather my hair and twist it tight. Black water rings out from it. The rain is everything. I lift my hands up into it, Let it scour out all the parts of me that make up what's wrong with me. Now, back to yourself, Tess. You saw something at the gas station. What is it? There it is. Yes, a payphone. Go to the car. There are two quarters in the ashtray below the dashboard. Make a call. Call for help. 
I get the quarters from the car and go to the payphone. I'm soaked, dripping. Water runs into my eyes. My hair lies lank and plastered to my shoulders. I lift the receiver. There's a click, then a dial tone. I dial a number. After four rings, I thought it would ring forever. Then he answers. I can't even speak at first. It's almost as if my voice is damaged. There's a rasp and a catch, and then words come out in a storm and an outpour. I'm crying. I can't stop crying. Something really bad happened. Something so bad. I don't know where I am. Oh God, I need help. Please come and help me. Please come and find me. Tess? He says. Yes, yes, it's me. It's Tess. Are you all right? No. I can't tell if I've done the right thing, calling him. Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have just kept walking out into the rain, into the dark. What am I going to tell him? The truth? He doesn't know anything. He's not part of anything. How can I protect him from the truth? Tess, are you there? Yes. Don't worry. I'm here. I've got you. I'm here to help you no matter what. I knew he would say something like that. Maybe I just needed to hear someone say something like that. Please come and get me, I tell him. I'm alone out here. I need your help. I need you, Zach. FBI case file 4815-1623-42. Evidence entry log. Audio recording of Interview 1A, Incident 16X1. Recorded at Chicago Precinct Interview Room L5 on... Date redacted. Subject Malia Johnson, waitress, 27, employed at Casey's Midtown Diner. Interrogator, Special Agent Juan Garcia Madero. Supervising Division 13 Liaison, name redacted. Fast forward 12 minutes, 36 seconds. They just started shooting. I thought it was bombs going off. All these explosions, it was so loud in there. But I saw their guns. I saw the fire coming out of the guns. Miss Johnson, I know this is difficult. You're doing very well. You're a strong person. You are. And just now you said that they started shooting. Can you clarify that, please? The man who came into the diner. How many men was that? I don't know. Three, I think. Two of them stayed right at the front door, and one of them came in, walked toward me. I had a tray of Cokes I was taking to table eight. Was that the table where the man in the nice hat was sitting? No, he was at table two, up near the counter. It's a booth by the windows. Tell me what happened, step by step. Two men were by the door, and the third one came toward you. Yes. Yes, and the man who came toward me looked over to my right. I think he saw the man who was at table two. I think the man with the guns were looking for him. And then what happened? It was almost like I dropped my tray before the man in front of me took his gun out and started shooting. I mean, I'm not really sure, but I think I dropped the tray before, and the cokes on the tray tipped over and fell off. And then all the guns were firing. Oh, God. There were customers. There were people in the booths, and people were falling out of the booths onto the floor. But I was down. I was 
something no one should ever have to go through. Take your time. Before we continue, I want you to know that you are a brave person. And the work you are doing right here, now in remembering what happened, well, it's going to ensure the men responsible for this will come to justice. sound, a, a ripping sound, and the other men with guns were dead. 
and I opened my eyes and looked around because it was all real quiet now. It was all over. It was all over. Did you see the man at table two? He was gone. And the thing that came in through the window, it was gone. And I walked out of the diner. I walked into the street. You were in shock? Yes. I kept walking. You were found at your apartment. You walked across the city to get there. I saw him again, Agent Madero. You saw Gabriel. I forgot that I saw him again. I forgot until just now. Where did you see him? It was like he was waiting for me. I don't know where I was. I, I was just walking. There were people around us on the sidewalk. He came out of the crowd. He took hold of me. He put his hands on my shoulders. And you felt threatened? No, Agent Madero, I felt safe. He said, you'll be fine, Malia. And I just closed my eyes and fell asleep right there, standing up. I just passed out. And I woke up in my apartment. The police were knocking at the door, but I don't remember how I got there. Yes, it would appear that the man at table two took you back to your apartment. Agent Madero, may I ask you a question? Of course. It's him you're after, isn't it? Gabriel. Miss Johnson. Were the men that were shooting at him, were they from the government? Miss Johnson, that's classified information, but let me assure you, it would be extremely improbable that anyone working for any agency of the government would open fire on civilians in a diner. But why are you after Gabriel? He helped me. He's a good man. I know that he is. No. No, he is not a good man. No matter what happened in the diner or after, he is not a good man. Major, begin journal entry. It's getting late, but I can't sleep. Not sleeping in the bed, if you're wondering. No, can't risk the dreams. I'm sleeping on the floor next to it, with my back against the wall and the bed sheets wrapped around me like a coffin shroud. I was telling you about the sorrow and how it came over me, and how Jenny was there with me. As I was writing this, Karen knocked on the door and asked me down for a whiskey. I have to oblige, I'm their guest. And I like these girls, I do. Jenny believes I've come here to heal. She wants to know what's happened to me, but she's careful not to push it. Karen just wants to recount the things she believes we shared years ago. Stories about the people she worked with, the cases that came through her law firm. Things I know absolutely nothing about. But I listen and laugh and agree with her. It's enough for now, if not for long. All right, it's time to write about what happened last night. This part is scary, little wing. You're not going to like it. I've thought about leaving it out, protecting you from these horrors. The truth, though, the truth is important, isn't it? 
You know that I was walking back to the B&B after having a coffee at the vegan diner. What kind of town has only a vegan diner anyway? And all they served there was decaf. When those men set upon me, forcing me to defend myself. Crybaby and I took care of one of them, and he was motionless where he'd fallen. The one with the pistol was in front of me, and there was a third man behind. Always three-man teams, trinities. This merely took place on a bend in a street where there were no houses, just trees on either side, an encroachment of wilderness here in the middle of these quiet residential streets. No one there to see what was taking place, either. The man behind me moved to strike. I had stilled the language of my movements so that what he read in me was only that I was unaware of him, a kind of rope-a-dope misdirection. He was armed with the same tactical baton as his fallen cohort. I felt it whistle by my ear as I ducked underneath the attack. His follow-through took him several steps toward the other man who held his pistol ready yet pointed down. If you're a professional, the only time you raise your gun is when you're about to fire it. Before, I thought they didn't really want to kill me. They might have orders to take me in and isolate me somewhere. Right then, it crossed my mind that maybe I should just surrender. Where would they take me? Who would be there to ask the questions, make the threats? Would it be more servants and soldiers? Or would it be the enemy this time? there to meet me face to face. The man with the pistol nodded his head. Yes, sir. His lips moved to say. He must have had an earpiece, must have been given a command to change the parameters of the conflict. Sure enough, his arm lifted and the pistol leveled the open O of its muzzle at my heart. Then, little wing, something terrible appeared between them. It came from the copse of trees at the side of the road, hidden all this time, now burst from concealment. It was murderously swift at its bloody work. The remaining two men of the Trinity were hopelessly overmatched. An arm had flopped to the ground in front of me, spouting gore from the torn shoulder joint. Then there was an appalling scream of agony, choked suddenly short, that diliquest into the quiet, gurgling sounds of life pumping out, slowing to a stop. There it stood. It was a thing that looked like a man. Its arms were stained red up to the elbows. It wore clothes in close semblance of what we might wear, with mistakes. Jeans that were ripped and caked with stains and dirt. No shoes over the black feet. A once-white dress shirt and a paisley necktie. A necktie worn crudely around the collar in a loose slipknot. Its uncut hair was a wiry, thick mass hanging from its head to its feet, a wild madness of crusted tangles and evil-smelling, matted clumps. Montatai, I said. It came up to me and curled itself up at my feet. Get up, I said. Come on now, none of that. Get up. I stepped back, loath to touch it or to be touched. Tatai rose to its hands and knees, crouching like an animal or an insect. I could see its face now between the parted lengths of its hair, a malformed, misshapen face. 
unfinished. It used dangling mouthparts, squeezing air through them to wheeze out a sound resembling speech. You have a warm place, he said. A home where two women live. They make food for you. I shook my head. You can't come with me, Tatai. You know that. I'm hungry. That can't be helped. I pointed at the carnage around us, the bodies of the three men. You need to take care of this. I'm cold. Where's your coat? Did you leave your coat in the trees over there? Tatai nodded. Go put it on then. Sometimes you give me a book to read. I don't have a book for you right now. Next time I come to save you, will there be a book for me to read? I sighed. Next time, maybe. It lowered its head to the ground. If you want to, you can pet me before you leave me. I stepped toward it, covered my mouth as I lowered my other hand and placed it on the top of its head. Its body shuddered and trembled. I walked away. I tried my best not to listen to the sounds of devouring that my golem, my creation, Montatai, made as it satiated itself on the remains of the men it had torn apart in order to protect me. No journal entry. I neglected to write about the most important part of last night. Before the men attacked me, before Tatai finished them off, I had been at the diner, the vegan diner, Crazies. It was an odd place, I thought, sitting down in a booth near the bathrooms in the back. The decor was an untrammeled mixed bag of seemingly random elements, 1950s rock and roll and Hollywood memorabilia, Native American cultural artifacts removed from their context, framed pictures of hippies taken in Haight-Ashbury, 1969, what must have been local children's artwork, strings of blinking Christmas tree lights. I was slightly dumbfounded. Then I took the menu from its wire holder on the table next to the homemade ketchup and hot sauce. Every food option was vegan. Crazy's jumbo smoothies are the best in the land was written at the bottom of the menu. I had a small amount of money left. I would not be spending it on a jumbo smoothie. It was almost midnight. For the late hour, there was a good crowd at the diner. A few couples working on dishes that admittedly looked delicious, heaped in sizable portions on the plates. A throng of school-aged teenagers pretending disaffection. Others in their 20s talking rapidly and laughing loudly into the spaces between total absorption with their smartphones. As I looked around the place, a man who had been seated by himself near the door rose and left his table and the fluorescent lights in the diner reflected with a flash from the round lenses of his glasses. I sighed a long sigh, 
The sorrow had gripped me the night before, and I had slept only fitfully afterward, waking well past noon the following day. In the hallway outside my room in the B&B, I heard Jenny telling Karen to let me be, give me space, let me sleep. And truthfully, I was grateful to her for it. I managed to make an appearance for the reunion dinner Karen had made for us, but I slipped away in due time, deciding that a walk in the cool evening air would help me overcome the aftershocks and echoes that the sorrow always left behind. My long walk took me down many of the green streets of Park Heights, and at last, perhaps inevitably, to Beach Boulevard, where I saw that the diner was still open. So I went inside. At my table near the back, by the bathrooms, I sipped on decaf and gazed through the window out into the night's deep darkness. I felt the weariness and tightness inside me lengthening, dissolving into the space provided by sitting in a public place, drinking coffee, even if it was decaf, listening to the susurration of the many conversations going on throughout the place. As I often do in moments of relaxation, inattentiveness, I produced my deck of cards and worked them onto the table, not to form a pattern or catch the magical energies of the locale, instead to extend the randomness of my disassociated thoughts, to peel away the weight of one thought so that another might take its place, and another. A girl went past me to the bathroom. I took no notice of her. There was no reason to. The cards had flipped. The tarot suits looked up at me, asking me to read them. I resisted them, not moving to take them off the table, not moving at all, frozen for a moment in hesitation and reluctance. I didn't want knowledge. I didn't want fortune. I didn't want to stay in this town. I didn't want to read the future of anything. Look at those cards. It was the girl who had gone past me. She had returned, and now she stood at my table. They're incredible, she said. No, really, they are. You know what? I'm going to sit down. I'm drunk, and I'm sick of standing. The girl slipped into the booth opposite me. I looked up from the cards, and I saw who she was for the first time. Fear and a strange thrill went through me. It was the young blonde girl I had been dreaming of before I came to Park Heights. I'm Lena, she said. Did I say that I'm drunk? I've never been drunk before. Everyone thinks it's really fucking hilarious. Lena, I said. Yep, that's me. I've never seen you around town before. But I don't know anyone. Her eyes were drawn to the cards again. Are you doing readings over here? I shook my head. No. Will you read my future? There was a spark of energy that surged between my fingertips and the cards, a force more than magnetism or inevitability. I would not be able to stop. I was shuffling the deck. This was everything that I didn't want. And I was helpless now caught in the nexus of power that had suddenly formed between the girl, Lena, and me, and my magic. Only three cards, I managed to say. I'm sure. 
she said uncertainly. My hands moved as blurs across the table. I weaved each card through the deck a dozen times in a few seconds until the moment split and asked me to deal. Then there were three cards, face up, three arcana. Well, the girl said, my future looks pretty shitty. She pointed at the last card of the three. There's lots of, like, death going on there. It's the end of the world. The card depicted a walled medieval city on fire in the distance, with tilled fields in the foreground filled with the bodies of men and women, reaching up with elongated arms to the starless night sky. Is that a real tarot card, or and this one's the fatal queen? I said. In the card, there was a beautiful, wrathful woman on a throne, her hair unbound, holding a sword in one hand and a wand in the other. And there were broken crowns strewn at her feet. How about that one? The mirror. There was an oval pool of silver water around which grew five symmetrical golden flowers. On the surface of the water, there was the reflection of a person, indistinct, little more than a shadow. Your cards are really weird, aren't they? She said. Little Wing, I looked into her eyes and everything came together. My hands trembled on the table. Reality tumbled. I could see what the cards had revealed. The mirror, the fatal queen, the end of the world. I saw the eventualities as they unfurled in the future. They were terrifying. The girl in the booth with me. Did she know? How could she know? Our futures were bound. I had been dreaming of it already. One of us would die. One of us would live. This little slip of a teenage girl and me. Would I be the one to cause her death? Or would she cause mine? I couldn't see separate fates for us. I couldn't see who it was that lived on because the other did not. A time was coming to us, a moment in which I would only remain alive through her death, or she would choose her life, and it would kill me. Based on the people we've met so far, I think I speak for all of us when I say Park Heights would not be on my list of potential new homes. I think I would skip that town. I would tell my realtor to go to the next town over. There's something so sinister about everybody in this town, but also these characters are great, right? And I don't know about you, but I love a story with weird twins. I can't wait to track their story. But Majo has met Lina, which means the foundation is really starting to set. Come back soon for episode four and the next installment in this strange journey. We'll catch you next time. You're listening to Fear, Dark Heights, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller, produced by Haley Wagreich, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Fear is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton and Felicia Dominguez. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.